0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Voices of Western, the Humans of Western podcast. If you are new, welcome. This is a podcast where we dive deeper into the personal lives of students, staff, and faculty at Western University. Now, before we begin, we wanted to thank you all for taking out some time from your day to listen to our episode. My name is Ria, and today I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Millen.
1: Thank you, Ria. So today our guest is Danny. Danny is a professor at Western University and teaches Geography, 2090 space exploration. Danny is passionate about climate change, robotic space exploration, uh, heavy metal, classical music and hockey and so much more. Danny has been at Western for over 10 years and we are beyond excited to have him here join us today. So first of all, how are you doing today, Danny?
2: I'm doing well, and Rhea, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, always happy to help out around the Western community and introduce myself to more people on campus.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, and thank you so much again for joining us. So I think let's just get like dive in. So tell us more about you and the course you teach at Western. Like what motivates you when it comes to teaching it?
2: Yeah, so I teach a course called Space Exploration out of uh, the Department of Geography and the Environment. Uh, I I first taught it in 2012, but I've been teaching it uh, more regularly since 2017, but I have taught it uh, 10 times now. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the course is kind of an overview of everything you might want to know about space exploration um, in terms of history and geography and, you know, what excites me about teaching it. Um, you know, I, I like to introduce new concepts to students um, and bring space exploration to them. Uh, within its context and that's something that really inspires me to teach about it i i think we all see things once in a while about space exploration online but uh as a geographer i like to bring in uh space exploration in its context so meaning that teaching about you know the probes we sent to the moon and mars and the history of human space exploration as well uh, but in the context of the politics of the time the economics of the time Uh, social issues, race, class, gender, uh, international relations, all how these things have affected the history of space exploration. Um, But then the other thing that excites me about the course is it's, it's, you know, it's partly a science kind of course. It's not officially a science course, but, you know, we talk about things like the formation of the solar system and why that matters for where we explore and how we explore um, the makeup of the planets and their moons and where they are and all that and I like that I've always liked to straddle the line between social science and and natural science and this course allows me to do that and allows me to have you know conversations with students on both sides of that and it's always interesting to to meet a science student who hasn't had to do much in regards to writing about social issues and it's always fun to meet an arts or social science student who's you know learning about some basic science concepts for the first time and they're excited about it so I like that. I like that it's this kind of huge overview class. Um, And yeah, it's, uh, I've been fortunate now to teach it, like I said, since 2012 on and off. And it's always full and always uh, very popular. So that's nice. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested, I highly suggest uh, signing up for it next year. That
0: sounds like an amazing course I think the thing that really stood out to me was how it's kind of interdisciplinary because you're taking a look at science and social science and just different disciplines that merge together which you don't normally see in a lot of courses around um, Western so thank you for actually um, bringing that up I think that's amazing
2: Yeah. I mean, it's super fun to teach about, right? I mean, as long as you stay within your lanes in terms of the topics, you know, um, I, I often just bring in guests and, and colleagues who know these topics better, whether it's accessibility and space exploration. I just interviewed someone for uh, gender and space exploration, race and class. Like I say when I bring these things in, um, you know, I speak to them to the extent that I can, but that's one of the fun parts of both the course is bringing in all these other voices that historically haven't really been represented in the space exploration community um, and then showing students at Western that this is you know the the big tent that is space exploration
1: no that's like that's amazing and as a student just seeing like a professor passionate about the subject they're teaching I think just makes the subject much more fun to learn and I really like the idea of like you bring guest lectures like and I think it helps us also see if um that's a career pathway we want to explore like get into so that's um that's an amazing um uh, uh, like uh thing you're doing in your classes so yeah thank you for that
2: yeah no it, it's it's funny i get that a lot in comments and, and teaching evaluations which are, are very important and, and i i'm always happy when students take time to provide feedback but i get passionate a lot which to me is Surprising, because I don't think of myself as an overtly passionate <laughs> person about really anything. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it's it's funny people say that. Maybe it's just I don't think I speak overtly passionately, but um, I'm glad that that comes across in a sense. I am, you know, certainly interested and excited to see students take on concepts that I teach them. Um, bring them new places, teach me about stuff uh, through their own writing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you want to call that passion, that's great. Um, I think that word, obviously, a lot of teachers and instructors use that word, and and it's good. Um, but I never really think of myself as passionate. I don't know, it's just me.
0: Yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. Sometimes you find out things about yourself um, when somebody else kind of tells you about it. So it really shines through, I guess. Um, And just outside of the classroom as well, I guess your passion um, kind of shines out um, in your recent publications. So the rumor is that you've recently published a book called Exploring Mars, the year-by-year narrative of space science from the the first Mars landing um, and beyond. So we kind of wanted to learn more about what really inspired you to write the book and what your overall
2: goal was yeah so that's the book that's coming out um so it's not okay. technically published yet uh we're still working on it and that's going to be the follow-up to uh, our first book uh for all humankind uh which i wrote with uh i co-wrote with a colleague of mine who's also a western alum and i think now adjunct professor dr tanya harrison and Uh, that book for all humankind came about a few years ago. We were driving to Toronto and she was talking to me about, she had heard someone that she was working with at the time at Arizona state university, tell her about his experiences, um, hearing about the first moon landing on the radio while living in Sudan. And she was really inspired by that and thought it was a really, really interesting story. And she, she was talking to me as a geographer, um, just saying like, that would be really interesting to hear more about, like what did other people, how did they experience the first moon landing through what media, um, what were they doing at the time? What was the mood in, in their corner of the world? Um, because we've only, not only, but predominantly heard stories from the United States to an extent Canada, uh, where we grew up and, and maybe the Soviet Union a little bit about you know that, that time, that day, um, the space race as a whole. And she she was telling me about this idea, and I was, my geographer brain was turning and thinking that would be really, really interesting to hear about, um, you know, people from around the world on that day, whether they were watching it on TV, or listening to it on the radio, or heard about it afterwards, or read it in the newspaper. Um, so I told her, you know, if you ever write about that, let me know, I can help you out with kind of the geographic components of of how people uh, interpret things perhaps differently based on where they come from or the historical context of the countries they're from um, and how to do things like interview people and, and stuff like that that I have a background in as a as a social scientist uh, that she doesn't she's a geologist so she she's never interviewed people or stuff like that and uh, yeah about a year later she emailed me that's and said I got a book deal um, and the book is due in October and it was like January so she said, oh, I I pitched you to help me with this. Uh, so yeah, the book's due in October. So this was the year I was finishing my PhD at the time, uh, getting ready to move from London to Ottawa. Um, so yeah, we took it on and we started identifying people from around the world uh, through our network uh, of people we know in the space community and beyond. We didn't wanna just interview people who worked in the space sector, We wanted to, to go beyond that. Uh, and we ended up with uh, eight people that we talked to, we interviewed them. Uh, they told us about their lives in the late 1960s, leading up to the first moon landing in 1969. Um, what they were doing at that time, and and then how that affected their life afterwards. And uh, yeah, it was it was it's a great little book. Uh, we're proud of it. We're happy we were we we're able to get it done and uh, find eight unique stories. Uh, it's been a while since I looked at it, but the countries. Uh, talked to Canada, Chile, Sudan, England, Spain, Mexico, India, and Iran, uh, people from, from those countries, and, and what they were doing on July 20th or 21st, in some of their cases, um, 1969. So, yeah, we released that the week the pandemic started. So that was um, maybe, I guess, somewhat of a, a disappointment in that context, Um but nonetheless, we're, we're happy to get it done. And uh, yeah, we're working on a follow up now, which will be a little different, but we're gonna look at the history of exploration of Mars uh, since the 1960s to now um, on a year by year basis and uh, try to have some fun with it and hopefully get that out for maybe next spring. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of a, a side hustle, so to speak of mine. Uh, in, in my later years as, as finishing my PhD and, and just now um, moving to Ottawa. That's
1: actually so interesting. and a uh, funny mention about like the uh, different stories. I remember uh, learning about the moon landing through my history class um, of when, it, when we were learning about the arms race and in like the Soviet Union and whatever. And I remember um, hearing this from my professor, uh, my teacher's uh, point of view in uh, high school. And I was, go- I went back home and talked to my grandparents about this. And they had like a whole, like the experience from my like a teacher who grew up in Canada from my uh, like my grandparents who grew up in India was totally different. And I found it so interesting while well, like hearing their different perspectives. And then now like, I-, I-, I can't believe there's actually a book about it. Like exploring those different ex- perspectives because I think that's not m- much thought about when like you hear about like like an like event happening in the world like the different perspectives from like the different regions around the world so I think that's very very um interesting how there is a book that talks about this so yeah no, I'm, I'm very intrigued like I might I might read up on it later on this yeah. today
2: yeah it's, it's available obviously at book source. um and that was one of the cool parts of doing this. Was it, some of these people we interviewed didn't speak English, so we were working through. Often their children who were working as translators for us, and and their kids were having a lot of fun with it, hearing these stories from their parents or grandparents for the first time, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And then, you know, when we were promoting the book here, and just like you mentioned right now, people saying, uh, you know, they read the book or they they heard what basic concept of the book, and they went and asked their grandparents or parents about. Not even just the moon landing, but that was certainly one of them, but just, you know, one thing we wanted to get across in the book was like, what was it like to be a teenager in 1969? And kind of just build that in a little bit. It's not what the book's necessarily about, but we thought, you know, for readers, it'd be a good reminder that it was a completely different world, right? There was no social media, no internet, Um, television coverage was really limited. So this world changing event how different was it to experience it back then versus how very different it would be today um so yeah it's cool to hear that you you've had that same experience with your grandparents and and I I advocate everyone should talk to their uh to their seniors uh to to hear about what was life like before i think it's it's, it's just endlessly fascinating to realize how different stuff was
0: yeah i definitely agree i think it's really important to spark um, like those discussions about what things were like in the past and actually like give a voice to our loved ones or perhaps it's a close friend who kind of grew up in a different generation I think it's really interesting to make that comparison like you just learn so much Mm -hmm. from one conversation it can be so powerful
2: yeah yeah it's mind-blowing sometimes and you know, I've been very fortunate to have some great mentors who were quite a bit older than me in, in, in age, but who I got along with great, but who would tell me about uh being in academia at a different time, um, working at a different time, buying a house, all that stuff. You know, and I, I, yeah, I just think talking like it's, it can be just, we're on a podcast right now, but it can be just as interesting as any podcast you have in your feed to just ask your grandparent, like, hey, what was like, What did you do in the summer in the 50s like what did you actually do you know like to me that's such a foreign concept of of a completely different world and landscape that it would probably be a fascinating hour-long discussion and i've had those conversations with my grandma and other older
1: people yeah i i completely agree it's very very fascinating and um you you mentioned how um writing a book is one of your um side uh, hustles is there anything else that you are currently doing aside from teaching geo and like writing uh, this book
2: yeah so my main uh way of paying the bills is working for the canadian space agency um i've been fortunate to work there since 2018 um it's a great job it's a it's wonderful position uh like i said pays the bills i have a lot of fun at work i mostly work on the earth observation side there um and that is to help other government departments in in the government of canada uh, identify applications of satellite data uh, satellites looking at earth not probes looking at other planets um, for their applications so agriculture fisheries and oceans climate change um uh, natural resources, stuff like that. So, it's it's a bit a different, um, bit different than than uh, teaching and and writing about space exploration. It's still the space sector, but it's it's focused on the satellites that look at Earth rather than uh, the things we send out to look at the other planets. Um, but yeah, no, it's a great position. I'm very fortunate to have it. Um, It was a dream job kind of to walk out of my PhD into this position. And um, yeah, you know, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, But I'm also just super thrilled that I still teach and still write uh, because those are things that I guess I am passionate about.
0: No, it's really interesting to see how you you have like a good mix of everything going. And I think um, your job itself with um, the Canadian Space Agency, um, kind of focuses on behind the scenes work that a lot of people don't get to, I guess, talk about, but it really does make like a uh, huge impact, I think. Um, but it's really interesting to see how you get to dive deep into different disciplines in a way.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of a sore point for geographers that we can sometimes be jacks of all trades. Um, masters of none, potentially. Um, I'm fortunate that I have a good, strong grounding uh, in, in, in governance theory and, and, and analysis of, of governance from a geographic perspective. Um, and that allows me to really you know, jump into different fields. Uh, I also have a background in political science and environmental science. So I've used those to my advantage in, in, in getting up to pace with space exploration over the last decade plus um but like you say you know jumping across disciplines and i i would say i do it less than a lot of people i know um su- surprisingly cuz when i was in school i thought you know we kind of specialize in something and that's exactly what we do when we finish but it's really not the case um certainly not in government and even in academia um you know increasingly you're you're jumping into worlds that you're not necessarily the, the expert and you're an expert in something else um but it, it keeps life fresh, you know, and, and um, so many important issues right now are intersectional and cross-cutting and whether they're policy issues or social issues, you kind of need to have, you know, at least a baseline understanding of, of a lot of things. Um, so for me, that's, you know, environmental science, space exploration, governance. Um, but, you know, for other people, it's, it's a whole host of other things and, you know, when, when you graduate and you finish, you realize you're almost always going to be working on a team, a whole mess of people, backgrounds, and uh, not just five experts on the same thing, uh, which was, you know, it, I don't know, it's fun, but uh, it definitely shatters the illusion that me and maybe some other people have when you're young, that like everyone's an expert at what they're doing, which is not always the case.
1: No, that's, that's actually um very helpful, too. Um, I think, like right now, as a, as an undergraduate student, you're I, I I'm like trying to figure out um what what i do want to do like after um i graduate um do i want to pursue a masters or phd or like what is what is out there so i think like get, like hearing our like professors journey through like whatever they're doing is not just teaching they have their research aside um and just learning more about that i think one is very inspiring and to um also very reassuring um just like knowing like there are that many possibilities you can do um, is like in any um in, in field. And like, for example, for you, like geography, and like tying that into space. Um, that's for me is very, very interesting and something that I do, I don't explore it, uh, myself. So yeah, no, thank you for like, like, like showing us that like there is that possibility.
2: If if there's anything I can be honest about to the, to the generation coming up behind me, it's that like adults are not as competent and and expert as we all thought when we were kids, which is. <laughs> I think you kind of get a hint of it when you're a kid or you're a university student but like when you get to your 30s and your 40s I'm not in my 40s yet but like you start to realize like wow we all kind of don't know what we're doing and like it's comforting and and you know I say that with this immense privilege of having a PhD and and, and being able to call myself an expert in things but I still obviously feel like I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time as well. Um, and that's okay. And That's normal. And I, I, I don't know, I try to communicate that to my students. Usually when you're an undergrad or, or master's, you, you enter a bit of a perfectionist mode and, and that's okay too. But, um, you know, I had good mentors ahead of me who were reminding me, uh, Dr. Phil Stuke, Dr. Jeff Hopkins, uh, both from the Department of Geography, who would tell me like, you know, it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to not really know what you're doing or to be figuring out on the fly uh you need to sometimes kind of let go of that vision you have when you're a kid of like well i'm not perfect but um those people ahead of me they are it's like no nah, they're not perfect either and and uh no one is and we're all just kind of figuring out as we go
0: yeah i guess just building off of the idea of uncertainty um i think another area area where we really see that play out is climate change and sustainability And I think earlier in this episode, you did touch on it a little bit, but we would love to learn more about um, how your passion for climate change has kind of paved your academic career.
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, I consider myself part of the generation that's born to see, well, depending how you look at it, born to see the end of the world or born to see significant changes in how we do things. Um, And, and that can be exciting if you look on the bright side of that, which is that we have an opportunity to really reshape things um, and move forward with a, with a more sustainable pathway. I took an atmospheric science course in my undergraduate and I was hooked on just the basic concepts of weather and climate. Um, I wasn't so predisposed to a mathematical background that I followed that into climatology or meteorology but I was really interested in in the impacts of weather and climate on society, on people. Um, So I started taking more courses on hazards and and natural disasters, natural hazards and and disasters. Um, And that led me into kind of doing my PhD on how Canada was preparing for the impacts of climate change. Um, So, I saw this as an opportunity to continue study something I really cared about, which was governance, which is really looking at the way that society organizes itself and and who does what in terms of government, academics, industry, um, and what kind of policy tools we use. But climate change to me was, there was a pragmatic side to it as well. Um, I knew that if I had a background and specifically climate change adaptation. So an understanding of how will the impacts of climate change, how will climate evolve, how will climate change, how will that impact um, our societies, what kind of things will we see, intense heat waves, uh, what kinds of duration, what kinds of extreme events, um, and how do we need to change our built and social society to prepare for those things. I knew that having a background in that would be really pragmatic. so as much as I found it interesting, it also checked the box of like, would this allow, would this get me a job afterwards? Um, which is something I make, you know, a, a lot of academics throw out things like passion and then following your interests. And that is all well and good. Um, but I come from a very low income family and paying the bills is always top of mind. Uh, so I knew that I needed to get a background in something that was employable, that I could could lean on to 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 work somewhere. And, and to me, climate change adaptation was something that was only ever going to be increasingly important. Um, so, you know, it shaped my academic career in that I always leaned into that topic as what I would be considered an expert in. That's what I published research papers in. That's what I did my thesis on. All the, all the while, you know, being involved in the space exploration world, going to conferences, Writing papers on that as well, teaching the course. Um, But there was a cynical side of me that was like, I might not get a job doing space exploration stuff. So, like climate change, if you just look at higher ability, I was like, well, that's what I need to do. So, I took a, you know, perhaps overly pragmatic perspective to grad school and school. But like I said, I grew up in a household where paying the bills was the constant concern. And And I still have that mentality. So to chase something really, really interesting and fun, but that might not pay off would be great. But I didn't have that privilege, essentially. Um, I had other privileges, but not that one. So, yeah, it shaped my career in terms of uh, it was something interesting enough that it could hold my attention for six years while I did a PhD. But I also was not too worried that I was getting a PhD in something too specific where I might be worried about getting a job afterwards so maybe that's an overly pragmatic and 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 downer answer but it's the reality of 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 uh, getting an education sometimes is is you do want to make sure you're taking care of yourself in the long term uh because uh you you will um, or already do have bills to pay
1: no, and it's great to hear how you're so um, open about that and how like there is this other side to education. And I don't hear um, most conversations are surrounding that. And I, have a, uh, I was wondering like, is your um, knowledge on climate change and the adaptation, um, do you t- try to tie that in into your GEO-090 GO- uh, uh, course? Not too much, um, there's,
2: a, there's a small component where space exploration, climate change oversect, overlap, oversects, not the word, I don't think, overlap. Um, and that is in a field called remote sensing. And, and this is a, a methodology of using satellites and satellite instruments to collect data about things using satellites. Um, but in my course, we're mostly talking about the history of things that have happened. Um, and we're mostly talking about Um, findings. We're not really going into the methods, so I would say no, not really. Um, However, in my job, uh, climate change adaptation and climate change is always top of mind for for using satellites to study Earth and and collect data on the Earth, Uh, but I haven't dealt too much really into the overlap of of things happening elsewhere in the solar system and climate change. Uh, There's not a huge overlap, in my opinion, um, but um yeah there's a little bit here and there
1: okay yeah no that makes sense um but yeah no it's like again just like that um like it's like interesting how um you like you're kind of able to connect like just like space like geography satellites and then like to, and then, like it's like how um you did research on that it's like i find that very very interesting
2: yeah i mean <sighs> And it, it, I literally sat down and thought about it quite often about like, what am I doing? And like, what am I studying and how will this all, and I would get worried sometimes that they were too different, that I was studying climate change and I was studying space exploration and they're, you know, am I wasting my time on one and not the other? Um, I think at the end of the day, I got really lucky in, in securing a position with the Canadian Space Agency um, in knowing, you know, people like Tanya, my co-author who, was able to kind of drag me into this book deal um and and being able to continue teaching but um yeah i don't i don't know i I think if i wasn't being paid to write and being paid to teach would i still be really into space exploration i think so um i've just been really lucky that it's worked out i get paid to kind of do both climate change stuff at the csa and space exploration stuff at western Um, but yeah, like I said, I often just consider myself lucky in that sense.
0: Yeah, I guess, I just think that it's, it's so important to point out how I, from my personal perspective, any role that you kind of take in learning about any aspect of climate change and trying to raise awareness about it, I think it is really powerful, because the first step to advocacy, I think, is education. So being able to take that step, regardless of whether or not it's like pragmatic or if it's something that's just solely based off of um, passion and just inspiration, I think whatever work you've been doing, whatever you've been learning is really powerful. So, yeah, thank you for talking about that.
2: Yeah, no, and thank you for pointing out that absolutely. I mean, we should definitely learn about things beyond pragmatism, um, and, and you see behind me a bunch of records and books, that's all classical music stuff, which I have absolutely no income related to. That's just a passion of mine, right? I just learn about that stuff for fun. Um, but yeah, you know, whether it's climate change or social issues, even if it's not your job, like you say, it can be really, really important to educate yourself um, and, and be, just become a better person.
1: Yeah, and for sure. And actually, just to switch gears a bit. So talking about like passions and hobbies, uh, can you, um, can, what can you say more about mental health in general? And like, how has your journey through mental health shaped your teaching and just to um, your day to day life?
2: Yeah, um, I made a couple notes here. If I to. So the way it's affected my teaching is that I pretty much always give students the benefit of the doubt um in conversations about difficulties with class, difficulties with their well-being in school as a whole. Um I also teach with a perspective that I should not really be designing my course in any way that would hinder a student's well-being. So what that means to me is that I, I build a course that tests people's um Challenges people's ability to to conduct research, to plan out kind of their their semester, and know that they need to do this assignment here, this assignment there. Um, but not what I think too many courses did when I was an undergrad: test like essentially your natural resilience, which is what exams and and really short term assignments typically test. Is they don't really test your ability to do research your ability to put down your thoughts on paper they really just test how well do you function under pressure which to me is not what I care about right like I'm not training fighter pilots I'm, I'm trying to teach the next generation how to take in information consider it and put it back down with their own thoughts that's to me what research is and that's what education should be all about um, growing as a person and learning more about the, the world and the universe around us um, so I build my course there's no exam um, and I try to build my course uh, more based around assignments now that being said I guess I have to call myself out I did have to turn back to online quizzes this year um, out of a shortage of, of uh, resources but the final project is one that is known essentially the entire course. Uh, students have the whole semester to work on it. And like I say, I, I'm interested in, in challenging a student's ability to take information in over a long period of time, um, assess it and put it back down um, whilst learning about academic things like referencing and sources and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, you know, for me that's that's a way of education that is is better in line with the variety of resiliences that people have or don't have um i was lucky i actually despite having a chronic anxiety disorder and depression i was quite okay with tests which is weird um i didn't necessarily always sleep well beforehand but i seemed to somehow still perform um but that's not the case for everyone and i've been teaching for 10 years and I've had countless students talk to me about their different resiliences and mental health issues. And I've realized, yes, I faced a ton of challenges uh, with depression and anxiety in my life and especially in undergrad. But in other instances, I was really lucky. So yes, I couldn't really sleep before an exam, but somehow my brain got it done. But that's just a natural resilience. I shouldn't necessarily be rewarded for that or punished, right? So um, it shapes the way I teach in that I try to build courses and assignments that, that again, tests to me the ideal scenario for, for growing as a person, which is taking information, assessing it, interpreting it, engaging others. Um, but things like putting a timestamp on that or, or pop quizzes or anything like that, which I think don't really exist anymore, um, that's not really how I teach. And then the last thing I would say is I try to be the professor I would while instructor I would have wanted when I was 21, 22, 23. Um, And a big part of that is that the first time, you know, when I was an undergrad, first time I started having panic attacks and, and having, you know, weeks long bouts of severe depression, my initial assumption was, well, I could never be successful because how could one be successful if Every once in a while, they just are useless for two weeks because they're depressed uh, or they have panic attacks before events or just randomly. Um, But as I got older, through treatment and other stuff, you you learn that that's okay. Um, But you also, very rarely in my case, but I did hear and see people kind of mention it in passing. Oh, they went through something similar uh, and they're doing okay now. So I took that on to be a far more extreme version of that where i'm very loud about my past experiences with the intention that people will see that oh okay i can get through it like other people struggle extremely hard during undergrad um and masters and they do do okay uh, because there's that really dark side of your brain when you're dealing with mental health issues, mental health issues where you, at least for me, and I, and I think this is quite common, where you don't think you'll ever be successful, and that's your that's your concern. It's, by successful, I just mean happy. Um, so now, seeing that I'm in a position where others will, whether I want them to or not, call me successful, um, and where I will call myself happy, I try to tell my students, like, yeah, you can, like I have a full time job. It's a space agency. I'm a published author and I'm an instructor. But I have panic attacks and depression. So like you can and there's people. There's probably CEOs of companies and politicians and all sorts of stuff. Um, I just didn't hear that when I was young. And it maybe it was my own little bubble that I didn't know about. Um, but I just try to be yeah really loud and tell them. And if they don't struggle with those challenges, they probably have other challenges in their lives, right? Uh, I'm a straight white guy. So I've, I've got some privileges on my side too. Um, and, and I'm loud about that as well. Those probably helped me get through. Um, so I try to let that influence the way I talk to my students, kind of open the door to them, remove the mystique of the super successful professor man who's, who's just up there and, and is perfect. I don't know if that's what students think when they look at a professor. I think I kind of did when I was young, um, or at least at some of my professors. And, you know, I remember hearing when I first started teaching certain things from students where I felt like, oh, like they think I'm like I drive in in an Audi and like live in a giant mansion. Like these kids think I'm like super well off and super successful, but like I'm just a PhD student teaching. But you never know how people perceive you. So, yeah I just try to be honest and open about where I have been where I am and uh yeah that's how I kind of remove the stigma of mental health in my teaching.
0: First of all I think I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story because I think honestly it takes a lot of courage to um just share your perspectives and especially on like a larger platform where you're sharing this with your students as well I think that's it just opens up the floor to conversations that we just don't really get to have otherwise. And just like breaking down these, like the assumptions that we tend to make about professors or influential figures in our life, just assuming that, oh, they don't really deal with anything related to their mental health. But I think it's so important to have that conversation. So thank you for doing that.
2: Um, oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I, I need to catch myself sometimes. Like, you know, I have bosses at work, or I have people I know, friends even, who I just think are put together and and have everything perfect in your life, and, and, you know, we all have our struggles and and whatnot, and if you're close enough with someone that you can be honest with them, or if you just want to be a better person, just always, not assume, but you never know what people are dealing with, right, whether they're successful or not, and, uh, or happy or not, so, uh, yeah, it it's it's good to kind of remove the mystique sometimes.
1: And I like how you mentioned how not everyone is perfect. Um, I think, um, for example, once you like you get a test back and it it didn't go as well as you expected, I feel like you have that tendency to compare yourself to others um, who do do amazing and you feel any you you think like, oh, everyone's just doing so much more better. And um, you you, you, sometimes you're in that little bubble and you talked about like the dark side of your brain. You're in that bubble. like, oh, there's like, well, how am I supposed to get up from this? So just knowing that like professors who have like PhD masters also do go through the same, um, same struggles, like, or like same, uh, similar, um, thought processes as like students may do is one like again like reassuring and also lets us know that um it's not like the end of the world as we may sometimes um assume that it is when like we do get like that first mark back first or like that first curse course grade back so i think um yeah like again like on ria's side like thank you for like letting us know that it, it is not that perfect image that we sometimes like create in our head like there is that the other side that sometimes it's not and actually most of the time not uh talked about
2: mm-hmm. yeah well you're you're welcome and, and i can only thank the people who who you know did that a little bit before me as well and you know there's a lot more talk about it now if you're on uh twitter at all before it, whatever's happening to it now but uh You know, there were, you'll see academics tweeting in in so-called academic Twitter about the importance of talking about failure, telling your students about failure, Uh, failure resumes was a big thing for a bit, I don't know if it still is, but essentially professors would put on their websites like all the applications that didn't get accepted, right, because CVs are, and resumes are a falsehood, right, like, well, they're not a falsehood, they're true, but they're very selective. And it's just like our our Instagram post, right? It's all the pics of you where you look the best, but like, that's what your resume is too. It's all your best things, but like most everyone in life and and definitely a lot of academics have a much longer resume of all the things that didn't get accepted or all the, yeah, I mean, all the bad grades they got in in undergrad or masters or whatever. So it is cool that people talk about it a lot more. Um, Yeah. And and in practice, like, you know, now that I'm in the professional world, um, things are definitely, I think, better for people who struggle uh, with mental illness. But, you know, just like I need to learn about other things in life, race, class, gender. um, There are others who need to learn about my experiences and I need to learn about theirs. And it's a process. And uh, but I'm I'm happy I I not to diminish what anyone might be going through today but I'm happy things are way better for undergrads today than they were when I was uh, going through it and certainly I'm sure in the 60s 70s and 80s god who knows how mental health was talked about back then I'm sure not good Um, so I'm glad it's better but it's still not perfect and we still need to support students
0: yeah I think you just brought up so many amazing examples and I think It just opened up a whole discussion that definitely needs to be carried forward um, on like at another time as well. But yeah, thank you for that. But we're going to be switching things up a little bit and we're going to (laughs) be diving into our segment. So this segment is called Western Bites. So we'll be taking you down on a walk down memory lane by exploring Western eateries and we kind of hope to hand down the years of knowledge and experience about the best spots to grab a bite around Western to our listeners. So we're going to be talking about places like Einstein's, the UCC Center Spot, the Spoke, the Wave, um, the Ivy Eateries, things like that. So just to start off, okay. Are you yeah. ready?
2: I, I am ready. And I'm, <laughs> I know, I did a little bit of research ahead of time. so
0: <laughs> It's okay. It's always better to be over prepared than under. <laughs> yeah. So for the first one, where is your go-to place to grab a quick bite around campus?
2: So my office was in the social science building. So my go-to was the spoke because whether it was winter or summer, well, in the summer I go outside, in the winter it's connected by a tunnel, uh, so I didn't have to put any jacket on or anything. Uh so yeah, the spoke uh either cafe or kitchen. Both very good. Uh but that was my go to and I'll leave it there cuz I know some of the follow-ups will <laughs> dig a bit more into these places.
1: Mhm. Yeah, no. I I definitely recommend the spoke. The spoke is amazing. And yeah, follow up. Like what do you miss most about these western eateries?
2: Okay, so here's where I might get controversial okay so i i miss the most something and i don't know sorry you guys are milan your second year
0: i'm in second year and ria i'm in my fourth year
2: okay so you might know i don't know how (laughs) long this has been the case the clt does not appear to be on the spoke menu right now do you know what a clt is
0: no no okay so
2: it's been okay it's been okay so (laughs) so it was a chicken lettuce tomato wrap it was in a weird kind of pita wrap, not a conventional, or it was more like a soufflaki wrap. Like it, it was a thick bread. Um, not like your typical wrap. And it was delicious. And it was a go-to it was a standard, which is why I assumed it was still there. So I don't know what happened between 2019 when I left and now, but there's no CLT on the spoke menu. And it was a standard. Like it was a, A regular so i don't either i'm having some sort of massive mandela effect moment or it's been taken off the menu and i i didn't i'm not okay with that and i would i would advocate a campaign be started to get the (laughs) seal back at the spoke or just like i would like to speak to the manager and find out what happened but yes i missed the most the clt and the spoke fries um but, yes, that's my answer The CLT, and it's not there anymore.
0: we got to bring it back. Petition to bring the CLT back. We're, we're going to get this started.
2: <laughs> I mean, other people must remember it. So <laughs> it was a thing. Like, even if you Google CLT Western, you'll see, like, articles here and there about, like, things you should do on Western campus. One of them is get a CLT. <laughs> so it was a thing.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, whoever's listening to this episode right now, let us know if you know the CLT wrap. like I'm, I'm very curious. This is my first time hearing about it.
0: Yeah. I want to know more too. Um, just building off of that. Yeah. Is there something from Western eateries, like the menu in general that you think you can't find anywhere else?
2: Yeah, it was a CLT. It was, (laughs) it was, uh, that was the only thing because everything else, I can find it elsewhere, uh, but the CLT was this weird concoction. Like I said, it was using like the thick, almost like a shawarma wrap or like soufflaki wrap, like the thicker bread, not what you would get a sandwich wrap in. And that changed everything. And then there was mayo, <laughs> lettuce, tomato, chicken. And I'm vegetarian now, so I, I would only eat it as a, either severe treat or here's my other suggestion to the spoke people. Uh, you could do, there are veggie chicken strips now that are very similar to the strips that were in the CLT. Um, and that was the other thing, the CLT, it was like chicken strips, like a chicken breast diced or sliced into strips stuffed in it. W- it was amazing. And, uh, yeah, so that's what I miss that I can't get.
1: All right. Yeah. No. That's that's very interesting. No. I, I. I'm. I will go to the spoke tomorrow and ask what's what happened to the CLT rep. Um, I mean,
2: so I was thinking about that because if I I haven't been back to Western largely because of the pandemic, but had I gone back for a conference or anything, I definitely would have gone to get a CLT, and I would have ordered it, and it would have been you know uh, some poor twenty twenty one year old who's probably only been there for a year or two, never heard of this thing either. And I would have looked like a crazy old man saying, like, back in my day, we had a CLT. What, give me a CLT. So I suspect anyone that you go speak to also won't know about this, unless it's the same manager. I remember there was a manager there. It was an old, not an older guy. He was in his 30s or 40s. He was the manager of the kitchen part. So if he's there, he knows. So that's who, that's who I would talk to
1: Okay. Okay. Noted. <laughs> that that's, that is who I will talk to. Um, but yeah. Um, also um, switching gears from the spoke, is there an underrated drink um, from Einstein's that you think that students should really try or like, would you really like?
2: So as a social science person, I didn't really know about Einstein's for a while, which I know might be strange because it's like natural sciences is kind of a central hub, I think for a lot of students and because of the bus stops as well. Um, so in the Einstein's was kind of like a newish surprise to me in my last few years, I would say everything, I, I don't know the drinks per se. We're getting into festive coffee season, which I am a huge fan of. Today was the first snow and I audibly gasped when I opened the window and my girlfriend laughed at me. She's like, I heard you gasp. And I was like, yeah, it's snowed. I'm a regular Lorelei Gilmore. When it snows, I get excited. And so Einstein's, any festive drink, um, I I recommend. So like hazelnut, praline, I don't know what praline is, but it's in festive drinks and I like it. Um, but yeah, I don't know much about Einstein's. I really liked also kind of the ambiance that was next to a library and it was cool, uh, but I wasn't in natural science too often.
0: It's actually kind of funny because um... Milan was also talking to me about like the festive drink menu and she was like I went by today they haven't brought it out yet oh (laughs) okay yeah so they really gotta bring that back Mm -hmm.
1: I think I only found the hazelnut. I remember last year, because I was usually, at my classes were usually on outside, I would always go to the Einstein's and they had this cinnamon one, they had this raspberry hot chocolate and they were really, really good. So I would also recommend the festive menu part, uh, for Einstein's. But yeah, no, I went today to see if they still had it and I only saw the hazelnut. So I was like, is this a part of the festive menu or is it, 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 it has not been brought out yet. So I'm very curious about that as well.
2: Okay, I'll give him a, is it, has it snowed in London yet?
1: It has, yeah.
2: Okay, so it should, I, I mean, to me, that's when someone should bring out the festive drinks, but okay, well, you can, you can go to the Spoke and get mad about CLT, and then you can go to Einstein's and yeah. demand festive menu.
0: We've got a whole journey laid out for us. <laughs> but speaking of libraries, because, you know, Einstein is by Taylor, exam season's coming up. So, do you have any recommendations for comfort food around campus?
2: Yeah, so Spoke Bagel uh, would be the go-to. I used to get Spoke Bagel and a a chocolate milk. Very carb-heavy meal. Carbs are your friend. Well, sorry, carbs are my friend when I'm stressed, <laughs> anxious, depressed. Um, I don't know. They make me feel better. I I don't want to point to any evidence because i don't know i don't know what that there is i know that i get angry if i don't eat enough carbs but i know that if i'm really down both seriously down with like anxiety depression or just need a pick me up um carbs make me feel good um so that would be my main go-to comfort food the extremely greasy bagels at the spoke i don't know what they do if they like dip them in grease i'm not complaining but like you get a toasted bagel from the spoke or at least it used to be like this maybe they've switched it and it was the grease would like cut through the bag I'm not complaining but I just remember that about them um there was a pizza place in center spot for a while and now there's one or there was one also in the basement of natural science there's like a little food court down there with like a burrito place and a pizza place and a Tim's um tim's is comfort food as well in general um yeah but pizza or bagel would be go-to bagels easier to transport so that would probably be the best
1: yeah no um I I agree um yeah I, I I also agree with the pizza place and I yeah it's like in that hidden spot in Tim Hortons like right beside like that door like you know like many people pass by I remember my first year I see the sign for the pizza place but I went in and I'm like where is this and then I, I didn't realize it's like that door that's like in between like in a very odd spot
0: yeah um,
2: yeah well and especially sometimes that door's closed because Tim's is open later and it like you wouldn't even know something's back there. But then you walk in, and there's yeah, there's a, when I was there a burrito place and a pizza place. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, of course. And then finally, I think this is the most um, cliche question, but I think it is answered. What is your go to spork order? Like, what would you ask for on your bagel?
2: Uh, it was the the jalapeno cheddar bagel toasted with garlic cream cheese, uh, and then a chocolate milk. And then at the kitchen, so that was the cafe order. At the kitchen, it was either a CLT with fries and a Dr. Pepper, because they have, at least they did have the fountain drinks outside, so you get your own, or a buffalo wrap, fries and Dr. Pepper. I know the buffalo wrap is still on the menu. Um, I had someone who was a Western lifer, they did their undergrad, master's, PhD there, tell me that it was, Called a buff wrap. I don't know if that's still a thing, but I was told that was the proper way to refer to a buffalo wrap from the spoke. Again, this could have all changed since I was gone, but those were my go to's. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, for our listeners, the next time that you're walking by the spoke, you'll now be well prepared. You'll (laughs) know what your (laughs) orders are, and we now know what we need to petition to bring back. So we'll get on that. yeah
2: yeah. or at least find out what happened like because they still have chicken on the menu so it's not like they went vegan or anything like that so I don't know maybe they couldn't get those wraps anymore I don't know I'm
0: actually interested to find out but well that will definitely follow up (laughs) and let you know but yeah I guess that's it for our segment so thank you for sharing all of your answers I'm sure that our listeners enjoyed that as well all right, so that wraps up today's episode. Be sure to follow us on our socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and you can find this episode on any podcast podcast platform you use, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We hope you all enjoyed it, and make sure to look out for our next episode.
1: And thank you so much, Danny, for uh, joining us today. I have lots of fun recording this episode.
2: Yeah, thanks to both of you for inviting me and chatting with me. Appreciate it a lot.